Welcome back, everyone, to the Maritime History Podcast. As usual, I'm your host, Brandon Hubner, and today we're going to kick off season two of the podcast with episode 21 When Amun's Journey and Early Iron Age Balkanization. I hope that you've had a chance to listen to our season one recap, which should give us a good base from which to launch right into season two here today. But I would encourage you to go give it a listen if you haven't had the chance to do so yet. It's nothing fancy, it is just a recap of our first 20 episodes. But I think it'll help give us a big picture understanding of just how Bronze Age history got us up to the point where we are at right now in the podcast. Episode 20 finished up where we saw how the Sea Peoples came into very direct conflict with Egypt in the years right around 1177 BCE. After another few decades, though, the mass migration seems to have died down somewhat, and a portion of the Sea Peoples resettled in Canaan. The big ripples had subsided by about 1150 BCE or so, and the next 100 to 150 years were a period of rebuilding and reorganization, Now, before we get too far along today, I should acknowledge that I poached the balkanization idea in the title today straight from Fernand Braudel, although I guess maybe it's not considered poaching if you give credit to the person who created it. Right, we'll just go with that. Anyway, here's the opening paragraph from Memory and the Mediterranean specifically from the chapter that begins his examination of the 12th century BC and beyond. So the rough time frame that he's alluding to is around 1150 BCE. Braudel writes there, The map of the Middle East had become extremely complicated. The simultaneous decline of Egypt and Mesopotamia and the collapse of the Hittite Empire had brought into being a multitude of small warring states, which occupied the forefront of history with their minor but noisy squabbles. That is the very condensed concept behind the term balkanization. I would assume that I don't have to expound on the thought behind the term, but I'll say briefly for those to whom it may be a new term, that it was connected originally to the gradual division of the Balkan Peninsula during the 19th century. The area there had been under the control of the Ottoman Empire for quite a long time, but as the empire gradually declined into ultimate dissolution, its former land holdings were divided up into many smaller states that were then often in conflict with one another. As you no doubt see then, this is how Braudel views the early Iron Age, at least in the areas of Asia Minor, the Aegean, the Levant, and to a lesser extent Egypt and North Africa. Rather than just list the changes to these regions, we'll let them develop as we talk about the maritime-related events that happened over the course of the period. Now, as fascinating as this concept of balkanization may be, and as descriptive and useful as it can be to the historian, it makes a discussion of the period more difficult, because it simply multiplies the pieces that we have to keep track of. 
Thus, I think at least to start here, we can talk about the larger regions at play to help us get an idea of the broad strokes, and then we can zoom in to look at the nuance once we have the broad picture established. Let's start with the Aegean to the north and west. We made clear that this area saw widespread trouble during the collapse, so much so that a portion of the Mycenaeans seem to have joined up with the Sea Peoples and eventually landed in Canaan, turning into the Philistines as we eventually came to know them. Even though the Aegean saw a drastic reduction, a few areas held out a remnant of early Greek culture. Athens, for example, wasn't wholly abandoned, and small remnants seemed to have holed up in the cities that possessed stronger walls and a better water supply. There, they remained to subsist and slowly, gradually regain their strength. They don't factor much in the story again for at least 150 years, though, so let's go ahead and move on now to look at Asia Minor as a whole. Much of this landmass had been controlled by the Hittites, but as we also saw last episode, the Hittites were basically wiped out in the course of the Late Bronze Age collapse. Therefore, Asia Minor and the northern part of the Levant were the areas where the early Iron Age balkanization found fertile ground. In place of the Great Hittite Empire sprang up many smaller kingdoms, a group that many scholars simply call the Neo-Hittites, or Syro-Hittites, for convenience sake. I don't have a whole lot to say about this group yet, other than to say that in their fragmented form, they spanned over a lot of territory. I'll post a map to help flesh the areas out visually, but the main point for me is that this rather unstable group of kingdoms that emerged from the aftermath of the collapse sat to the north of the area that we now see as being home base for the Phoenicians. We'll get more into the emergence of the Phoenicians and all the historical debate behind them, the name, and all of it, probably starting next episode. For now, though, take a look at the map to see just how they're basically the meat in the middle of the early Iron Age geography sandwich. The Neo-Hittites to the north, but you'll also remember that some of the Sea People settled in Canaan. Also, the Hebrews of the Old Testament made that area their home in the general period after the collapse. To the east, Mesopotamia was still there, much weakened, but the Assyrians were still in the middle of the region there and retained a relative measure of power which they attempted to expand from time to time. They also will factor into the story as we move forward, but again for now, it's time to turn the focus on the Phoenicians. In the north of the Levant, you may remember that the city of Byblos had been a major trade center for over a thousand years already, as we now sit at around the year 1100. The three main cities that are always mentioned in conjunction with Phoenicia are the trio of Byblos, Tyre, and Sidon. Hopefully those names are a little familiar to you. 
They all three came into existence long before the Bronze Age collapse kicked into gear, and all three of them emerged from the collapse surprisingly intact. This actually was a large part of the reason that the Phoenicians were in prime position to grow so quickly after the collapse finished, especially when compared with the many regions that saw varying degrees of destruction. As I said, this trio of Phoenician cities all had very ancient origins, all three of them so ancient that we really don't know how they got started in the beginning. Herodotus has his story, sure, but ultimately the origins of these cities are shrouded in the mists of prehistory. We find more sure footing in saying that Byblos and Sidon were the two predominant cities before the Bronze Age collapse. But after it had concluded, they began a slow decline. Not nearly as drastic as other cities endured, but in relation to Tyre's decline, they did indeed decline. Tyre, though, managed to assert itself, and at around 1000 BCE, Tyre became the leading city in the emergent Phoenician bloc. That's getting a step or two ahead of the curve here, though, because prior to the emergence of Tyre, and how it can serve as a perfect example of the rise of the Phoenicians as a whole, we have another perfect picture about how the region of Phoenicia and the Levant became more independent as a result of the Bronze Age collapse. To set the stage for this example and its relevance, we again have to go back to a time before the collapse. If you'll remember, we talked on several occasions about Egypt's relationship with the Levant. The pharaohs sent out many a ship to retrieve cedar wood from Byblos, but it seems that a large portion of that trade flowed the other way too, from the Levant down into the Nile Delta and beyond. At one point in the Late Bronze Age, not too long before the collapse kicked into high gear, really, Egypt was pushing north, attempting to gain control of territory in the southern Levant region. As you well know by now, that attempt didn't pan out for them. The widespread collapse shockwaves pushed Egypt back, far back actually. By the end of the collapse, we saw how Ramesses was forced to repel at least one major invasion, perhaps two or three. All of that led to the situation that we opened with today, where Egypt was greatly weakened by about 1100, that the south of the Levant was home to the resettled Sea Peoples and Hebrews, in addition to a number of other small tribes who'd been there all along. The north was under the control of the Neo-Hittites and company, and the Phoenicians were sandwiched in the middle, ready for their big moment to shine. Right at this point in history, we have a story that seems almost tailor-made to help us see how Egyptian influence had dwindled to the north, and how new players had assumed the stage, ready to write their own rules. The story is referred to by several names, but I will call it the Report of Wenamun, for reasons that will become clear in a bit. 
There is actually some debate about the specific date when this story is supposed to have happened or originally been written down. But a broad range puts it somewhere between 1100 and 1050 BCE. This time frame puts the events of the story about a hundred years after the Sea People's invasion, a century or so after the collapse. Rather than get into the various theories held to by academics, let's just recount the gist of the story. I am going to go ahead and record the translation of this story in its entirety as a supplemental episode too, and I think it'll end up being about 20 minutes long or so, so not too long. And uh, go ahead and look on the show notes for today or on the website for a link to the supplemental reading of When a Moon's Story. From the outset of the story, we're told that it concerns the voyage of Wena Moon, who is called the Elder of the Portal of the Temple of Amun. He's a priest of the temple then, and we're told that the high priest has charged Wena Moon with overseeing a voyage to Byblos to fetch timber for the great noble bark of Amun-Ra. Now, we talked a lot in the first half of season one about the place that boats held in the Egyptian religious mindset, with that place having probably come about because of the centrality of the Nile to the very existence of Egypt and its culture. Commonly, religious barks would fall into two categories, and barks is just another word for boats here. The first category is the portable bark so that it could be displayed inside the temple of a particular god, or perhaps carried by the priests during the land-locked portion of the god's procession festival. The second category would have been a full-sized sea or river-worthy bark that could have been used as a festival ship for the relevant festival during which the god was recognized and worshipped. The episode art for this episode is actually a photo of the sacred bark of Amun-Ra, as it's depicted at Seti I's temple in Abydos. I've posted a high-res copy of the whole scene from the temple in all its beautiful color, and you can find that in the show notes too if you want. Now, we aren't explicitly told in Wenamun's report whether he was supposed to retrieve timber for the portable bark or the fully operational bark but I'd imagine that for a trip all the way up to Byblos, he would have been smart to grab enough timber to build both of them. Who knows, though. And as we'll see here in a minute, things didn't really go that well for Wenamun, or for the great noble bark of Amun-Ra. Perhaps that is why an alternate name that is sometimes attached to the story is The Misadventures of Wenamun. So after Wenamun accepts his task at the story's beginning, we're told that he sets out from the Nile Delta port city of Tanis, where Smendes was at that point. Egyptologists hotly debate the chronology as they are wont to do. But Smendes was the pharaoh that founded the 21st dynasty. He seems to have originated from the Nile Delta area, Lower Egypt, also, so it makes sense that he would have been in Tanis and would have been the go-to guy 
for help in setting the journey to Byblos into motion. After Wenamun leaves the relative familiarity of Egypt, the story starts to get interesting. Right away, he makes a stop at a port town called Dor, a site that's been identified in archaeological digs and is located on the Mediterranean in the northern part of modern-day Israel. At the time when Amun made a stop over at Dor, it wasn't controlled by the Hebrews. He tells us that it was ruled by a prince of the Tejeker people, a man named Beder. The Tejeker should sound familiar to you also. They made up a fraction of the Sea Peoples over a century before when Amun met their prince. So this is a good support for the idea that some of the Sea Peoples had resettled in the Levant after the collapse slowed down finally. It's interesting, if we were to take the picture of the Sea Peoples that Ramesses had painted back when he claimed to have repelled their invading fleets, then we would have to view the Tejeker as the savage outsiders, and Egypt as the cultured perennial power. That's the way Ramses painted the picture. It's a remarkable revelation from this story of Wenamun that we get an exactly opposite picture. While at Dor, one of Wenamun's men absconds with a lot of gold and silver, half a kilo of gold, and over two kilos of silver. In an understandable reaction, when Amun goes to Beder, the Tejeker prince, and pleads for assistance to track down his traitorous crewmen and the stolen gold. Now again, if we were to take the Egyptian picture of the former sea people Tejeker, then the prince should have happily assisted, considered it an honor to help out the great Egyptian priest perhaps maybe even his duty as a possible former subject of Egypt. Bader's actual response is pretty cheeky. He looks at Wenamun and says to his face, quote, Are you joking? You can probably imagine how things progress from that response. I'll save the details for the supplemental episode, but in the end, Wenamun leaves door, sails north past the Phoenician city of Tyre, and makes way to Byblos. Before he gets there, though, he decides to seize a large amount of silver from a Tejeker ship that he happens across, saying that he's going to keep it until they get him back the money that his own man stole from him back in a different city. Needless to say, the Tejeker did not remain on amicable terms with Egypt after that move, if they were even there beforehand. Bader's snarky response seems to indicate that any iota of Egyptian sway over their neighbors to the north had dissipated totally after the collapse. Unfortunately for Wenamun, and in a seemingly unexpected turn from his perspective, he arrived at Byblos, dropped anchor in the harbor, and was promptly told to get out. The prince of Byblos had likely heard about Wenamun's treatment of the Tejeker and the seizure of their silver as revenge for Wenamun's hurt feelings. There are other reasons for Wenamun's reception by the prince, but after some back and forth, they finally get down to brass tacks 
and start negotiating over the cedar wood for the bark of Amun-Ra, the entire reason that Wenamun was even in Byblos to begin with. The translated paragraph from this text reads like this, the first question here coming from the prince of Byblos. On what business have you come? Then Wenamun responds, I have come in quest of timber for the great noble bark of Amun-Ra, king of gods. What your father did, what the father of your father did, you will do it. The prince fires right back, true, they did it. If you pay me for doing it, I will do it too. My relations carried out this business after Pharaoh had sent six ships laden with the goods of Egypt, and they had been unloaded into their storehouses. But you? What have you brought for me? The dialogue that follows demonstrates the reality that Egypt is no longer in charge. Its influence doesn't reach to the north as it once did. In fact, the prince argues that Egyptian trade with the Levant was once carried out on the vessels of Egypt, which may have indeed been true to some extent. As when a moon stands in the city before the prince, though, he says that Egypt's reduced levels of trade aren't even carried out by the Egyptians themselves. They use the services of the merchants of the Levant. By this point, we could probably call these merchants Phoenicians even, the traders of Byblos and Sidon, later Tyre as well. Egypt's fleet, its reputation, and its political sway had all dipped to historic lows. This, though, is only confirmation of what we've already talked about, really. So let's continue with the story. Eventually, the prince of Byblos concedes a little ground, allowing Wenamun to send seven finished timbers back down to Egypt. In reality, it wasn't much of a concession. The prince just treated these seven timbers as a signal that he would play ball. But Wenamun could only use them to secure an advance of money to finance the rest of the timber that he would need to build the ship. Wenamun came to Byblos expecting gifts from a subject prince, tribute almost, but he was greeted with rejection of Egypt's authority and the negotiation of a business deal. In the end, Wenamun gets the requisite timber for the great noble bark of Amun-Ra, and after some more argument with the Prince of Byblos and some heckling, courtesy of the locals, Wenamun gets underway back to Egypt. Now, if you haven't felt that the events so far gave rise to the alternate title Misadventures of Wenamun, then you may be pleased to know that as soon as Wenamun sets sail from Byblos, his ship is engulfed in a storm that blows him off course. He manages to survive the storm intact, but he ends up hitting land on the island of Alatia, or Cyprus, another place that's cropped up quite a bit in our discussions. Somehow or other, the islanders mistake Wenamun for a pirate, which I think is just more evidence of Egypt's fall from prominence in the greater part of the Mediterranean. Almost no one on the island speaks Egyptian, and when Amun is saved by one local who does speak Egyptian and acts as an interpreter for when Amun, 
while he pleads with the princess for protection. I am sad to say that it's at this point the story is cut off in the texts that survive. We're not sure if when a moon falls into more misadventure, or if he makes it back home to deliver the timber for the sacred bark. I'm no expert on Egyptian literature, but those who are say that it's entirely possible that Wenamun did make it home safely. The story is oftentimes called the Report of Wenamun, like I said, because it's structured as an administrative report. That structure being the case, it's a fairly safe assumption to think that Wenamun did make it home to actually write the report what with the underlying hints of an Egyptian superiority complex and all. The story was apparently quite popular in ancient Egypt, and I think it remains interesting today. Our look at the story should be tempered with the knowledge that there's a sharp divide amongst modern scholars about many respects of the story and its origin. For starters, it was once thought that this story was a fully historical account of a guy named Wenamun and his mishap-riddled journey. I'd say that the prevailing thought today is that the story was not historical, but was rather a work of literary fiction focused on a tight plot, flashy dialogue, complete with some imagery and ideas about politics, religion, and culture. It certainly does seem to be a polished story, a bit too polished for something that was originally an administrative report about a single journey. There is, as there normally is, a middle ground theory that is kind of tempting to me, but it's really impossible to substantiate to any degree. The theory is that when a moon's journey was originally written down as an administrative report, and that a later scribe found the report, copied it down for his own reasons, and that it eventually found its way to someone who refashioned it into a work of literature, polished it up a bit. Some have even proposed the idea that this initial copying down of the original manuscript, which appears to have happened about a century removed from the events of the story, this copying down may have been done in preparation for a second voyage to Byblos. All of that is, however, if the original events were even real to begin with. Our focus here isn't on the story itself, though. I just thought that these things were important to note. Whether the events of the story were real or not, the relative time frame during which the story was written down is the same and we can assume that the author would have been painting an accurate picture of the world around him, even if the story or the characters were intended to be fictional. Beyond that, the story isn't all that kind to Egypt's self-image either, so that is another finger on the scale in favor of this story being an accurate portrayal of the status of the world in 1050 BCE, even if the story is made up. I'm going to go ahead and put a pin in it here for today, as I think that When a Moon Story gives us a great context from which to begin our proper look at the Phoenicians next time. 
This episode is a bit short compared to some, but think of it as a transition into the next era of maritime history. An era that will give us a lot of material on the Phoenicians and the Greeks. As I researched the story of Wenamun, I found a wonderfully done comic strip version of the story, put together by a writer named Rolf Potts and illustrated by his nephew, Cedar Van Tassel. It's a wonderful balance of portraying the story accurately, but finding the humor within the original text, and I think that you'll enjoy it if the original text in the supplemental episode seems a bit lifeless to you. I will link to the comic on the show notes for today's episode, and I'd really encourage you to go give it a look. As I wrap up today, I do also want to give my personal gratitude to those of you who recently became MHP supporting crew members. With specific thanks to Alex, PJ, Russell, and Chris for your support. I've been trying to put out member episodes that align with our current spot in the historical narrative, and I am going to continue doing so into the future wherever that's possible. At times, at least when we're still back here in ancient history, that can be a little bit tough to find the material for those bonus episodes without pulling it out of the main episodes and leaving those stretched too thin. I'm sure you don't care about my problems in producing the podcast. All of that is to say that I'm working on some ideas to make our member episodes more frequent, and those may involve exploring other facets of maritime history. If there is anything that you as a member would be curious to learn more about, definitely reach out and let me know. I aim to please, so I'll see what I can do there, but I'll also be in touch before too long with our members to share my ideas for some new crew member episodes going forward. More thanks are due to our recent iTunes reviewers as well, since those kind reviews and ratings go a long way toward keeping the podcast visible on the iTunes charts. Thank you to the four most recent people to have left a review. Laramo2, uh, username 100 and a bunch of letters that I am not going to attempt to pronounce, Steve Massey, and all the way from the lovely UK, Sandy Saunders. That just about does it for my material today. I wanted to conclude by expressing my gratitude to you all for your patience with the recent episodes too. I just finished moving for the second time in six months, and let me tell you, it's a bad idea to move when you own so many books and are picking up more all the time. I'll land somewhere long term at some point, but I do plan to keep working on the podcast into the future, and I'm super glad to have such a great crew of supporters behind this humble podcast endeavor. We'll be back before long with episode 22 where we begin our proper look at the Phoenician cities and how they rose to become the merchant power of the early Iron Age. This is your host signing off, and until next time, thanks for listening to the Maritime History Podcast.